0: It's not comforting, chilly or kind. It's sizzling blood and the unholy stench of murder. It's not natural, noble or kind. The flesh you so fancifully fry. The meat in your mouth as you savor the flavor of murder. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I told you to quiet down over there, for God's sake.
2: Who are you talking to? <laughs> Both
1: of you.
3: What? We have a lot to talk about.
1: All right. If you're out there savoring the unholy flavor of murder, you better drop it. It's time for another v- 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 version of the v- vegan radio.
2: <laughs> and let me tell you, listeners, you can tell we're off to a good start.
1: Sorry, we forgot to bring our letter Vs today. <laughs> so... Today's show is going to be very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Why, Derek? Why, Scott? Why? Because oh. we have Ray oh. Sakara from Simply Enough Humane Educator, and we also have Freya Densha, who helped found the American Vegan Society. All right. And they're both going to be on the show
3: <laughs> here in our very own studio. Wow!
2: And I can a- attest to. Ray Sikora's amazing personality, full of sunshine, positivity. You know it's very affected by her.
1: Really?
3: Yes. Oh, yeah, and she's got a great voice. Yeah. There's that too.
1: Okay. No musical guests today. And we have some news stories and some events coming up next on Vegan Radio. You're listening to WXOJLP <laughs> 103.3 FM. I'm Derek Goodwin. <laughs> <laughs> and today's news and events, no. we have uh, <clears throat> some belly dance workshops coming up for the Vegan Bus fundraising events for us. We have Amethyst from Pittsburgh, Vegan Belly Dance Extraordinaire coming to town at the end of this month. And what we have is an American cane belly dance workshop, which is May 23rd in Amherst at the Shaolin Kung Fu and Fitness Center from 7.45 to 9.15 p.m. How much is it, Derek? It's $30, 50%, which will go to the vegan bus. The dance is full of earthly stomps, vibrations, and popping. Tribal nature and music differs from the traditional Egyptian cane dancing with Saudi music. This dance will not be traditional cane, but instead will be an earthy tribal style of dance and music. And then on May twenty sixth, which is a Saturday, we'll have Amethyst in Northampton doing a wild tribal choreography workshop, which is going to be for intermediate level belly dancers with both structured and improvisational dance selections. Uh the choreography is a variation of a group dance performed on her electro belly DVD. <laughs> and half of those Electro proceeds Electrobelly I like mm. the sound of that
2: Half of those proceeds Will go to the vegan bus Yep As well
1: And uh, she's also going to be Performing on Thursday the 24th At. Uh, oh that's Thursday the 24th She's going to be on vegan radio Replacing Megan <gasps> ah! Megan is fired We're sending her to France
3: <laughs> Not so much
1: replacing as just temporary
2: I'm going to France I'll see y'all later
1: She's going to France, and we're going to dance.
2: Is she really coming on? She's really going to be hosting. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm replaced that easily. She's huh? going
1: to have a little belt with uh, jingly bells on it, <laughs> and uh, she's going to shake her belly around for us.
2: Oh, it's too bad our listeners. It's too won't bad get you're going to see miss her. it.
1: Oh, we'll be filming.
3: We're going to miss you, Megan.
1: <laughs> Maybe a little less. than yeah. the, Otherwise, we'll have we the show have. on YouTube yeah. for our listeners. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, so she's also going to be performing live that night um, at the Art Bridge in Shelburne, Mass. With some other belly dancers and a live performance by the Mawal Musicians. And you can find out about all that stuff on the veganbus.com website, which you can also find a link to from veganradio.com.
2: And why don't you just give a little recap about... What the vegan bus is, again, for our listeners that are the just tuning in for the first The vegan bus is our project
1: time. to convert a school bus to run on biofuel and vegetable oil, and then we're going to drive it around the country doing education and outreach, bringing Megan to the people. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bringing vegan Megan's baked muffins, goods.
3: They've, which, they've never seen anything look quite like Megan.
1: <laughs> Megan's cupcakes made us late <laughs> starting it, today, Scott. too. So. Yeah. In case you were wondering why we we're five minutes late starting, it was because of Megan's cupcakes. <laughs> They have that effect and she had to get a soy chai before she left and a chocolate chip cookie
2: chocolate chip peanut butter <laughs> <laughs> so
1: uh that's it for events unless you guys know of anything else
2: oh, i don't about. think so
1: um so and that we have two news stories
2: two news stories i'm gonna
1: do yours first megan
2: sure a pair is guilty of killing federally protected birds Two men residing in western Massachusetts have been convicted in connection with the killing of federally protected bird species, including a bald eagle, ospreys, and great blue herons. After a six-day bench trial today, Judge Michael Ponser found Michael Zack of Sunderland, Massachusetts, guilty of one count of shooting and killing a bald eagle, commonly referred to as an American eagle, in violation of the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, Act and one count of violating the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Prior to the start of the bench trial on Monday, March 26, 2007, Zach had pleaded guilty to one count of conspiring to violate the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and two counts of violating the Migratory Bird Treaty Act for the killing of great blue herons and ospreys. Zach's co-defendant, Timothy Lloyd, pleaded guilty on Friday, March 23, 2007, to all three counts in the information filed against him, one count of conspiring to violate the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and two counts of violating the Migratory Bird Treaty Act for the killing of a great blue heron and an osprey. The killing of hundreds of protected bird species by the defendants revealed their disdain for our laws and their wanton disregard for our nation's wildlife heritage, commented U.S. Attorney Sullivan. The laws that protect our wildlife were created to ensure that the American eagle and other migratory birds exist for generations of Americans to enjoy.
1: Enjoy these birds.
2: (laughs) And they actually exist for their own...
1: Yeah, they might exist for their own reasons.
2: Yeah, for their own reasons as well. Zach owns and operates Mohawk Trout Hatchery in Sunderland, Massachusetts. In September of 2005, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service special agents received information from the Massachusetts Environmental Police that Zach was suspected of unlawfully killing protected great blue herons and other federally protected migratory birds that are natural predators of trout. An investigation by the FWS documented the remains of approximately... 279 great blue herons, six ospreys, one bald eagle, one red-tailed hawk, and three unidentified raptors, all in various states of decay along the edge of the hatchery property. Forensic examinations conducted on 10 of the great blue heron carcasses collected by FWS revealed that all 10 had been killed by rifle shot.
1: There's also a lot of uh, fish that these people killed, allegedly, that are... um Carcasses are decomposing in people's bellies all around the world. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. I'd be be
3: going there for a second.
2: Me too. (laughs) On three occasions during the course of the investigation, while conducting surveillance of the fish hatchery property, FWS agents observed Zach fire a rifle in an attempt to kill great blue herons and ospreys that had been in the area of his fish hatchery. On one occasion, agents also observed Lloyd, who worked at the fish hatchery, Fire a rifle, killing an osprey. The FWS agents also recovered the carcass of a freshly killed, immature bald eagle from the hatchery during one of their su- surveillances. Leg bands and the dead eagle, which wildlife biologists had placed on the bird when it was nestling in Connecticut, indicated the bird was a three-year-old female. A forensic examination of the eagle determined the bird had also been shot by a high-power rifle. Judge Ponser scheduled sentencing for both defendants for June 27, 2007, at 2 p.m., they each face a maximum sentence of six months in prison and a $15,000 fine on each of the Misdemeanor Migratory Bird Treaty Act and conspiracy counts to which they pleaded guilty. Additionally, Zach faces a maximum sentence of one year in, pr- in prison and a $5,000 fine on the Bald and Goldal- Golden Eagle Protection Act charge. I say, not enough time. <laughs> Book them. <laughs> Book them, Dano.
1: Yeah, and so they're, they're only getting a few months.
2: It sounds Apparently. like, yeah, well, the most we'll, we'll six We'll see months. what happens
1: in June. I mean, we'll the, whole, update.
2: the whole prison thing in general is not, I'm not really down with anyways. It's like they obviously, they need help. They need some kind of counseling and, you know, some kind of emotional work done with them. Yeah. That's what I think.
3: Why do you coddle these people? <laughs> you know maybe we should uh you need a big stick to to deter them from their crimes
2: well i i just think the problem is that you put them in jail like are are they really going to like stop doing that cuz they were in jail for 6 months or they're not it's not going to change their minds it might like you know deter them a little bit but it doesn't mean that they're going to have any more respect for animals by putting them in a prison cell Well,
1: this story kind of like highlights a lot of speciesism that goes on uh you know they they're killing all these animals to protect their fish which right. they're going to kill for uh, people to eat. Right. And but it's really right. about money. It's really about money.
3: Yeah, because they have to sell their fish. They have to make right. their money. They have, they have to keep their business going, and so they're right. protecting their business ultimately. Right. They're not doing it for gratuitous a lot reasons. Of
1: businesses do terrible things to keep going.
3: Right. Well, you know, it goes into like part what what Megan was saying, you know, it's like we have a civil system, civil law, and that's sort of like, you know, you can't mandate Morality or ethics so much, right? There are certain areas, but you know clearly. I mean, this is one area where, you know, it would be nice if there were you know things in place for rehabilitation and sensitivity training, but it's hard to get that in there. Yeah, well, there's just too much of religion.
2: Because I think because I think you need that, and then instead of being like you're going to prison for six months, I like I believe that there should be consequences, and there should be a much heavier financial charge than even i think what they're giving them so that maybe they do go out of business and i mean that's still i think
3: they might
1: be out of business at this point oh okay
2: that'd be like
3: corporate personhood murder if you did that
2: (laughs) yeah exactly i don't know
3: it's uh, you can't get too too penal about these things penal penal yes you just wanted me to use that word (laughs) (laughs) that's why we have two stories like it today i guess um so i'll get to mine now how about that all right (laughs) all right I don't know if we've covered the speciesism. No, we'll be, but we're going to come back to that a lot, I'm sure. Really? Yeah, so over the coming months, we'll have a series <laughs> about it. Um, so this, this story uh, is all over the news. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's out there. Uh, in Georgia, uh, it's being widely reported that a, quote, vegan couple were found guilty of starving their six-week-old baby to death. And uh, their sentence? Life in prison for both of them uh eligible for parole i'm not sure when but it's in georgia so whenever yeah. that happens to be and they're
1: african-americans
3: uh yes that isn't mentioned in the in the headline but i think that would be strange well i guess the fact that they're being to mention touted it. as vegan but the fact the thing is that they
2: uh they mention that they're vegans i mean
3: yeah so what i have here is actually not the original story but it's an op-ed yeah i um, don't think you need to read the whole thing op-ed but if you news could kind of uh yeah i'll skim i'll skim for y'all all right. Uh, the AP story reports that a couple, uh, the, a vegan couple, fed their baby mostly soy milk and apple juice. That was what, uh, uh, you know, the kid didn't have enough nutrition, and they didn't apparently breastfeed the child. It
1: wasn't soy formula. It was uh, just regular soy milk. Right. So, you Which know. states right on the package, not suitable for infants.
3: Right. So, they were trying to do something, and they didn't do it quite right. So, you know, sentence for life. Uh, so... I wish this op-ed were less op-eddy. <laughs> I don't know. We don't.
1: We don't really have this their their story of you know what their veganism you know how the, about their veganism or about you know if they were really vegan or they were using this as an excuse because they messed up or
2: right it's
1: kind right of all the stories I've read have been you know haven't really included their point of view in it.
2: But I mean, what what struck. Me, like, so basically it's this this couple, they had a child, they're in jail for life imprisonment because they fed the child, I mean, I guess it is called a vegan diet, it was soy milk and apple juice, and so they had misinformation about how they should take care of their child. Now, there's got to be other instances of...
3: Actually, there is. In 2002 in New York City, uh, a couple were arrested and charged for neglect when their child, uh, which was... uh, I believe, like 10 months old, uh, was discovered close to death and, and, you know, they, I believe the child was ended up developmentally, developmentally disabled, but, uh, they received, uh, in, in New York, the maximum sentence would have been seven years. So they probably got something close to that or under that, and maybe it was deferred. I don't really know. I have to look into it, but it's it's not the first time it's happened. And that story was also reported as vegan couple. You know, I remember uh, that. Blah blah blah. So you know, the, I think there is a certain amount of this kind of demonization of veganism and trying to bring it down and saying, well, look, you know, obviously, it, if if a child is going to die, you know, then uh, this isn't the right way to go. You know, so there's obvi- obviously, I mean, we can figure out ways to go, and there's a that's what this op-ed is about. So uh, I'll give a little air to Am- Amy Freed's ideas. Uh,
1: yeah, I like the. If you want to read the part about like the feminist connection to all this, too.
3: Yeah, I'll work it down from. Uh, so starting out, even if the couple wanted to use a soy product instead, any pediatrician would have told them to use a soy-based formula, not soy milk. In fact, most soy milk products are clearly labeled as not being a substitute for baby formula. Uh, And contrary to what the judge in the case apparently believes, there is nothing inherent in the vegan diet that should be dangerous for children. Um, An online pediatrician's guide, uh, which we'll link to, explains how vegan babies and children can easily be kept healthy on a vegan diet. And most of the advice that's relevant, breastfeed for at least a year, take your vitamins, would be given to vegans and carnivores alike. It's unfortunate that such misinformation about the vegan diet still abounds even among otherwise educated people. People get particularly emotional at the idea of separating children of all ages from cow's milk. In her enlightened, enlightening book, Nature's Perfect Food, How Milk Became America's Drink, <laughs> Melanie Dupuis looks into some of the reasons why. While many vegan activists and other followers of food politics correctly point to the heavy influence of the industry, particularly the National Dairy Council, Dupuis discovered that the fervor for milk predated even those forces. Specifically, the idea that milk is vital for children went hand in hand with the profound changes in the family brought about by the Industrial Revolution. With men leaving the home to work in city factories, women became preoccupied with a new set of duties that went along with their new urban lifestyles, which precluded breastfeeding. Others were forced to also work outside of the home, which also discouraged breastfeeding. Uh, there were also pressures to abstain from breastfeeding in order to boost fertility. And uh, in the early to mid-1800s, experts, quote, uh, unquote, started to cast doubt on the competence of mothers to breastfeed their children. It had only worked for a millennia before that. <laughs> That's parenthetic. I didn't add that, I swear. (laughs) Uh, On a deeper level, discouraging breastfeeding was a way of wrestling control over a part of the economy previously controlled by women. As Dupuis puts it, uh, throughout the history and prehistory of the human species, breast milk provided the major sustenance for a person's first year of life. In other words, women's breast milk production represented a significant part of the human food economy. One does not have to be a member of La Leche League. Uh, La Leche. Yeah, La Leche League. Uh, to understand that a significant economic change took place, when, place when, the, when women's bodies were removed from food production. Sadly, Dupuis also points out that the switch to cow's milk, especially before regulation and pasteurization, contributed greatly to infant mortality. Actually, uh, it may very well still. Uh, infant mortality in this country is extraordinarily high, and it really oughtn't to be, and disproportionately high for uh, minorities.
1: It definitely leads to childhood onset diabetes and... Ear infections and a lot of other terrible things that happen awesome. to little kids, because yeah. they drink
3: milk and we've talked about it before. it brings early onset uh puberty and uh and it, later on in life it leads to developmental problems and uh and all breast the pre- all the precursors for breast cancer are increased
2: and is prostate cancer also not just drinking milk when they're little but when uh babies and small children just don't breastfeed. They end up developing a lot of allergies and things like that. So it's yeah. like breastfeeding. They say you should breastfeed your child up to two years of age for like their best chance of health and immune support.
3: Sure, and I mean it goes to generations. I mean the continuity of our species and, and animals and life in general depends on our having a continuous source of good, healthy energy. And uh, the species itself kind of starts to fall apart. Perhaps it has as much to do with increase in cancers and things is anything. It's mm-hmm. our nutrition and the source of our energy.
1: And, of course, we're robbing lots of young calves of their milk so that we can have this orgy of milk in our culture. Right?
2: That's right. That's that's If, if everybody out there doesn't know this, that's the way you get your milk. It means that there are many young baby calves that are turned into veal. Um, they're taken away at that point so that we can get the milk from the mothers and then those young male baby calves go into the veal industry so that we can eat their yeah, flesh. Well,
1: well, that's the byproduct, but also the female calves don't get real cow's milk. They get some kind of formulaic stuff mm-hmm. because we're drinking the, their mother's milk. And then the male calves <clears throat> are, are not useful to the dairy industry, so they're made into veal and thrown away or killed, eaten.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's what converted me ultimately was just the realization of the Forced impregnation of cows, and you know, just I, I didn't want to take part in all that. Call me crazy,
2: call me, call me kooky. Well,
1: you are crazy.
3: <laughs> I know that's that's true. A little, crazy, ex- a little crazy eccentric in a here in the corner. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we call him our little eccentric. <laughs>
1: so, uh, we're running a little behind here, but <clears throat> I don't know why. Um, next we have an interview with Ray Sakura, who is at our Valley Vegan Society. Um, meeting last week and she stuck around for a couple extra days so we got a chance to interview her. Do you want to say anything about Ray?
2: Um, Just that she's been doing you know what you would call like humane education for I think she's 51. She's been doing it for 30 to 40 years.
1: She looks like she's about 40. She (laughs) looks fantastic.
2: She's like I said she's just full of positive energy she is, she's walking her walk, which is what she says is like, you know, people look at you and, and watch what you're doing. And, and I think that's, so she, you know, tries to.
1: Actions speak louder than words.
2: Yeah. So she tries to, I think, be, you know, fully positive and, um, living her vegan lifestyle. I think probably trying to buy her clothes in a way that is not connected to pesticides and. Um, unfair labor practices. Um, just trying to do everything that she possibly can to be a great human being, and I think it just shows in her um, positivity about life.
1: But she's also an educator, and she goes and does a lot of programs in schools and things to, you know, help the younger generations learn to be compassionate.
2: Right, and her 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 shtick is to be. You know compassionate towards animals and to the environment and to other people and to yourself it's like trying to make hey, all hey. the connections
3: we, hey. love, we love you ray <laughs> oh, Ray.
1: <laughs> okay double move for ray <laughs> so here's the interview with ray vegan radio
4: hello
1: here with ray sakura
4: hello you too after having just eaten one of Megan's desserts, oh!
1: <laughs> <laughs> what did you have?
4: Raspberry coconut oh, okay. agave sweetened okay. delight, that's and a chocolate good. chocolate cupcake that was like was Hostess cream filled. Oh. That was JC's thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and JC, where are you from? Detroit. Detroit, and you're the you're the man out there. That's what we heard. Yeah, I'm
4: I'm I'm the man in Motown.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The former president, but founder of Veg Michigan. Veg Michigan. All right, so we're gonna have an interview here. (laughs) Ray, could you start with um, what your background is and what you're up to now?
4: Over 30 years ago, I chose to be vegetarian. Then I moved toward vegan, cared about wildlife, and then humane education chose me. I was doing this work in the community where I live, going into schools, teaching about animal issues. I was known as the animal woman from when I was very, very young, from when I was a kid, known as animal girl and then animal woman.
2: And And when you were in humane education, how
4: old were you? Humane education started... Well, I mean, it depends how you define humane education. You know, humane education is so confusing for people to hear because they think, oh, those are just the people who do these specific curriculum programs and they go into schools. But I think the reality is that humane education, it happens every day, all the time, with whoever any of us bump into. What we wear, what we eat, what we say, what we do, how we communicate, all of it, I feel like, is humane education. So I don't like it too narrowly defined. And in a way, that's why I've kind of moved away from humane education, because people have that very narrow definition of it. I think, like, the best humane education program, well, I don't know if it's the best I ever did, but the one that sticks out in my mind is like, oh, yeah, that taught me that humane education is more than classrooms was on a subway in Boston, Mm -hmm. and I was on the subway and it was rush hour, it was about 90 degrees in Boston, and there was, you know, here's all these people, they're like hanging from those handholds in the bus and they're sweaty and they're hot and it's crowded and it's rush hour and they're on the T, and so we're all on the T, and I look across and I see a beautiful butterfly, alive in the subway and I look and I see this is across and it's up where those advertisements are Mm -hmm. above you on the subway and and I thought I've got to get this butterfly out of here this poor thing is (laughs) trapped in an underground subway and then I was kind of looking at the, the line and where it goes you know where does this train go and I thought oh we're coming to the only time it comes above ground on this T line in Boston and so I said, excuse me, excuse me, I kind of move through everyone and people are like, What the heck? You know, I'm moving through quickly and I asked this guy, can I borrow your seat for just a moment? And nobody knows what the heck I'm doing. And then I step up on that seat and I cut this butterfly. And at that exact moment the door opens and the only above ground stop. And I take my hands out the door and I uncut my hands and this butterfly flies on. And here's all these tired people who had like no expression on their face. And I turn around and there's people smiling and there's people clapping and they're laughing. And, you know, it woke everyone up. Mm -hmm. My mission wasn't to wake up the other people in that train. My mission was get the butterfly out of here to freedom. But inadvertently, I think, just by living our lives and taking action where we see that something needs to be done and if there's something we can do, we do it, it has this huge effect on people around us we don't even realize.
1: Is that the butterfly effect?
4: The butterfly <laughs> effect. <laughs> hey, that's where that phrase started. <laughs> so, you know, you can ask, like, when did I start doing humane education? I don't really know. You know, when it was officially called humane education in my life, it um, was long after I started doing it, and even long after I was doing programs in schools, I didn't know there were humane educators and... I started going on, on sick days and vacation days. I would take these days from wherever I work, and I'd go to these programs in schools on how our lifestyles affect animals, the environment, other cultures, just all the ways that our lifestyles are affecting the world. And how can we make different choices, how powerful our individual choices are. So I'm doing these programs and I never knew they were called humane education. And then I looked at the back of I think it might have been Animals Agenda magazine or something and there was this conference coming up and it was a humane education conference and I looked closely at this magazine. It was it was happening in Boston and I looked at it, I thought, Humane education and it starts describing these things and I thought, Oh, that's what I do. So I had no idea what this was and and I decided to go to this conference. I had never been to the East Coast. And I went to this conference, and then I ended up doing a presentation there because everyone else there was doing humane education, but was backed by a large organization. And I was doing it just on my own. I didn't have anyone backing me or paying me a salary or anything. For many, many years, it was just a labor of love. And in fact, I had stepchildren at the time, and they said, you know that work you don't get paid for? That's your work. That's what you get happy about. That other work... Where you get paid, you go, but you're not as happy. And I had great work. My other work was wonderful. And still my passion was to go do this unpaid work in schools with rowdy kids who were quite challenging. I mean <laughs> humane education in classrooms is challenging, you know. You get kids who who don't wanna hear what you have to say, they think you're crazy, they're looking at what you wear, they're just picking you apart sometimes. But you always have those few who are woken up by. you see their little light bulb go on and it makes it worth everything. And then there's some who you, you know, when I first started, I thought there are definitely some lost causes in this classroom. But then after a while, I realized there are no lost causes because some of the kids who I thought one year were lost causes, I would find out much later. They were just causing trouble because it was so close to something important for them. Yeah. And I have no idea if I'm speaking to someone, whether it's a young person, an adult, whoever, they might be just about to round this corner into looking at a compassionate lifestyle, and you don't know it. So I don't think there are any lost causes. There's a, When I learned about that, I had gone back to this area in Minnesota where I had lived most of my life, and I had done programs there. That was my first humane education programs were there. And I went into the animal shelter there. And there was a boy working there. And I thought, God, this kid looks familiar. You know, he was maybe in his early 20s. He said, I said, he looks so familiar. And he came up to me. And he said, do you remember me? And I said, you look familiar? He said, I should look familiar. He said, I was terrible to you. I said, you were. And then I remember, I said, oh, I do remember you now. He said, remember, I was swearing at you, and I was nasty to you. And he was really putting me down in the classroom. And I said, I do remember you. He said, you know what? He said, after that time you were in our classroom, I really thought about how much I love animals, and that I wanted to do something for animals. And that's all he was doing after that. He dedicated his life to helping other species. He was a vegetarian. He was working in this shelter, volunteering. And when I left, I was asking them about this guy. And they said, this is the only steady volunteer we've ever had. He comes in all the time and works with these animals. And so I thought about it. He was a kid, I thought, this is a lost cause. So it really taught me in a really tangible way, there are no lost causes. You know, I think of someone like, you know, family is the biggest challenge for most people, making changes, you know, you're you're choosing this direction, you want your family to understand what you've chosen. And they're the ones that we're so stubbornly hold on to, you know, like, I want them to understand, I really want them to get this. And I think of like my father just stubborn with this stuff, but always at me with questions, and in a way, I just want to write him up, like, leave me alone, mm. and now the guy has gone vegan, wow. you know, but he was the, the one who just drove me nuts, he'd call up, once he called up, he didn't <laughs> even, all the night. he didn't, didn't even say hello, he said, <laughs> babe, you know, what about lobsters, don't you think that's extreme, I said, what about lobsters is extreme, you know, those kooks who try to save lobsters, don't you think that's extreme? <laughs> and I said, well, I think it's pretty extreme to take a living being and put them in boiling water. That seems extreme to me. He said, oh, babe, come on, they're just a crustacean. And I said, and that means what? So they skeletal structures on the outside instead of on the inside. So what does that mean for your argument? Oh, never mind. And he hangs up. You know, like end (laughs) the conversation, you know. (laughs) Or he says to me, We're at a family reunion and he sits me down real serious. He's always on it, you know. He says, Yeah, I think that you don't really care about people. I said I said, Oh, tell me why you don't think I care about people because to me it seems pretty obvious I care about a lot of people. And he said, You know, like people like pig farmers, if you cared about pig farmers. You wouldn't live the way you live because if people live like you, pig farmers are going to go out of business. I said, "Wow!" I said, then you don't care about people either. And he said, yes, I do. He said, I eat pigs. And I said, but you don't smoke cigarettes. What about those poor tobacco farmers? <laughs> you know, so you obviously don't care about people either. He said, oh, babe. You know, and then he kind of thinks, when he says, you're right. But he's he's the one. He's really thinking about it. So he's always coming at me with the questions. Mm -hmm.
1: So um, let's shift gears a little here. I noticed that um, when you were describing how you talked to your father, he would uh, come at you with something, and then you would turn around and ask him a question, Mm -hmm. which is what you were telling us at the Vegan Society is a good way to to deal with people who are asking questions like, uh, where do you, or I don't know. What are the questions? Uh, Where do
4: you get your protein? Why chickens? They're so stupid. I can give you all of them. Yeah, all of it. If you come to me and say, why chickens? You know, chickens are so stupid. You know, why not eat chickens? I understand cows or, you know, cute sheep, but not chickens. And rather than go, oh, now I have to pull out all of the information about the intelligence of chickens. That's what we do. We pressure ourselves. Oh, now I have to convince you in this brief time we have that chickens are really wonderful and intelligent. That's too much pressure. Instead, why can't I literally listen to what you're telling me? Oh, you're telling me chickens are stupid. Let me, instead of trying to have you understand me, let me understand you. Oh, your experience... Is so different from mine. I have a totally different experience of chickens. My experience of them is that they're actually quite intelligent. Tell me about your experience with chickens to turn it around. You know, because 99% of the time if I say, Oh, tell me about your experience of chickens. They have none. They have never come face to face with a chicken. They don't know them. They're just saying something they've heard so much. So... It's so powerful because it does two things. It helps you understand the other person. It helps them inquire as to why they're saying this thing they're saying. So it's, it's a really wonderful way to do it. Oh, okay, you're telling me this. Tell me more. I want to understand you.
2: It's a therapist approach. It's like let the other person talk mm-hmm. so then you can find out more information about where they're coming from.
4: And they can find out more information about themselves because we go blah, blah, blah. You know, we say these things, Mm -hmm. but the reality is many of them aren't things we've thought about a lot. You know, we don't consciously think, who and what do I care about and how is it reflected in my life? And so it's really wonderful. You give that person an opportunity then. You give them an opportunity to say, oh, I always say that the chickens are stupid, but... I don't really know chickens. I don't know anything about chickens. You know, most people don't. All they know is the cellophane-wrapped package or the bucket from KFC. This is what they know. So they don't really know them. They're really quite intelligent. I'm doing. I'm writing this material now on animal intelligence because I think it's one of the ways that we take other species and toss them aside as not being as worthy as us, not being as valuable as us. They're not intelligent. And they have, all of us have a different intelligence. We don't understand their language. We don't understand a lot about their lives. That says more about our intelligence than theirs. So I'm doing all this on intelligence right now with animals and I'm writing this curriculum for the Middle East, for Palestinian and Israelis and animal issues and a lot of it is on intelligence because that's a very easy way for people to just write them off, write off other species. And I think, like, what if the intelligence test was given by bats, for instance? They would say, okay, here's your intelligence test. You know, it's a pitch black night. There's no moon. I want you to go through this forest (laughs) at this speed and not bump into a single tree. Go. Go. And, you know, we're like bumbling idiots. You know, we can't do it. We'd smash into trees. We couldn't go at their speed. And they'd say, what an idiot, if a bat was writing the intelligence test. <laughs> you know, so we're writing the test, of course. You know, anyone who doesn't fit our little mold doesn't look intelligent.
1: No bat left behind. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you could be a bumper sticker writer. I am. Oh, <laughs> my
0: God.
1: Oh my God. Oh my God. Ooh. All right. That was Ray Sikora. And now we have Freya Dinsha on the line, I hope. Freya, you're there?
5: Yes, I'm here, Derek. Hello.
1: Hello. How's things going today?
5: Well, it's a beautiful day down here in New Jersey.
1: It's a beautiful day here in Massachusetts.
3: It's always a beautiful day in Northampton. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Good. Um, so we have uh, th- three people here to interview you Scott Latane, Megan Shackelford, and myself.
2: We've got a whole host of questions for you.
5: The
1: usual crew. The vegan yes. tag team.
5: <laughs> All right, well, I'll do my best to answer them.
1: So uh, you've, you and your husband co-founded the American Vegan Society quite uh, a few Well, I
5: wasn't there quite at the beginning. But oh, you weren't? No, no, my husband founded the society in um, early 1960, and I met him later in the year and then joined him with running the society.
1: So it was an exciting year for him. He founded a society and then he met you. A big year. And uh, you're coming up on the 47th anniversary of that, is that right?
5: Yes, indeed. We are having our 47th annual meeting. And we've held our annual conventions, or whatever you want to call them, in different parts of the United States over the years. It gives people a chance to see our headquarters, and um, we have a large collection of books and media in support of vegan living, and we can never take all of it somewhere else, so it's a good opportunity for people to come and look at all the books we have.
1: So um, could you tell us some more about the event? Is uh, It's May 27th.
5: Yes, May 27th, it's the Memorial Weekend Sunday, and we serve a lunch at noon. We serve the lunch on the porch, and so far the weather's generally been good, so people will eat outside, but if necessary they could eat inside, because we have um, various indoor areas that could be used for that. And being at our headquarters, we're able to make the food ourselves, which means it's um, Home cooking, very fresh and delightful. This time of year, we're just getting the spring crops starting, so there'll be salad greens and asparagus and strawberries, and we'll serve that with our special cashew pear cream. We okay. also make our own veggie burgers and potato salad, mushroom onion gravy, carob sponge cake, and we serve uh, herb teas.
2: And I heard, is it a uh, crazy rumor that Kenneth Williams, the vegan bodybuilder, is going to be there? Is that true?
5: Well, I'm sorry to say he won't be there. Oh, oh no. no. What he happened? Been he's called nervous. away to um, go to other places. But he is on the staff of American Vegan Society now, and we hope to do plenty of things with him. But as you know, he's in demand as a speaker. Mm-hmm. And as I say, he gets called to different places, and he got a very big invitation, which meant that um, he had to send his regrets about being with us for this weekend. <laughs> and so for this... this um, uh, uh, we, we, we have two speakers, excellent speakers. And who One are they? One is uh, Dr. Barbara Ellicott. Uh, she is about 65 years old. She's a speech pathologist by profession. But like many Americans, she's had a problem with her health over the years, eating the typical American diet. Uh, She was overweight, had edema and heart problems. But through learning about exercise and then complementing it with a vegan diet, she's managed to bring herself to a great state of health so that she runs a marathon every year. She ran her first one in 2001. And I think the three points that keep her well are exercise, diet, and a positive mental attitude. So she will talk to us about that. She's um, an admirer of Dr. Ruth Hydrick and John McDougall and his teachings. And who else are you having speaking at the event? Uh, we're having Stu Chaffetz, who is a wildlife expert in South Jersey. And he will be talking about wildlife issues. In particular, he's been taking an interest in the black bear population of New Jersey mm-hmm. and also the deer. So, and he's done some interesting studies and, and papers about how these animals are, are managed to favor the wildlife wanting to promote hunting of the deer and the and the bears that sounds like a great lineup it is yeah he um. uh, He's relatively young he has a, a young son and, and wife but uh, he's one of the up and coming nonviolent advocates and a great voice for for the animals he is a vegan as well of course great
2: and I just want to switch gears a little bit Freya um uh, I just have a question about With all your years of um, vegan outreach and education, I'm wondering what you have found to be the most effective um, with changing people's minds um, to include the vegan diet in their life.
5: Well, I think people come to veganism from different areas, and it's not the same for everyone. Many people, it's a health choice, but if they're going to stick with it, they need to have a strong ethical conviction that this is the right thing to do.
1: Could you tell us about your um, husband? I know he passed on a few years back, um, but he was a, a big influence on the vegan movement. The moder- uh,
5: Jay was a, a dynamic personality and an inspirational speaker. His when he gave a talk, it was a little bit like a sermon. Yeah, and he really told people um, he didn't give them excuses for making making the right choices. And, And, uh, of course, back in those days, veganism was just about unknown back in 1960. And he had a sense of humor. He said people said he was a crank. (laughs) Um, But he said, you need a crank to get things going. (laughs) So that's what he really did. He traveled across the country uh, in the early 60s staying at different uh, cities, talking to different groups, um, vegetarian groups, animal welfare groups, theosophical groups, and that's that's how we started spreading the message. I traveled with him on some of those trips, and we stayed in people's homes, and I picked up some of the recipes that we used in the Vegan Kitchen cookbook, which was the first cookbook that had uh, vegan in the title.
1: Wow. Is that still in publication?
5: It's still in publication. It's in its 13th edition. Wow. And it's it's the way I cook. I still use the recipes. You still use that cookbook? That I've been building on over the years.
1: <laughs> were you guys hippies back then?
5: <laughs> I don't think we were hippies, no. Jay was a little more straight than that. <laughs> and he,
1: was, he was a straight crank. Well,
5: straight yeah. crank. And what, what, did,
2: what would Jay have said was the most... Um, influential way to get people to, say, convert to veganism? What, what, what do you think he would have said about what was most effective?
5: Well, he talked to people about ahimsa, which means without hurting or harmlessness. His father came from India, and so he had a bit of a background in Indian philosophy. He also talked about reverence for life. So the two people who influenced his... Ethical thinking the strongest were Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Mm. Although neither of those two people was actually a vegan, they, their moral philosophy pointed strongly in that direction, not only for Jay, but for other people too.
1: They were both vegetarians, all right.
5: They were vegetarians, yes. And for Gandhi, it was the tragedy of his life that he didn't manage to be a vegan.
1: Right. Uh, Is that
2: something that Gandhi stated?
5: Yes, I believe so. Wow. Well, he fasted a lot, uh, political fast. Mm -hmm. Yes. So his body was worn down by many of the struggles that uh, he was involved in. And to regain strength, he did need to take some milk. So I think the milk that he used was goat's milk. And that was a little bit of a... A fudge there. He's, when well, he had given up milk at one point, he had meant he had um, meant not to drink milk, but when he was told he needed some milk, he chose goat's milk instead of cow's milk.
2: Hmm. I had never heard that. Yeah.
1: It's interesting because that, that the cows in India are regarded a lot differently than they are here. I know that, so... Um, you know, I was—I would. Think well,
5: there, there is a reverence for the cow in India, yeah.
1: I would think She's that it was—it's kind of a different.
5: It's a holy, holy mother figure. Yeah. But uh, they, nevertheless,
2: uh, they have
1: the belief that the cows—the the, cow—want us to have their milk or something.
2: Well, that they're sacred, and that—I mean—I believe that the treatment of the cow is different, and that they have cows walking around the streets, and some people will just take a cow and take the milk who's walking. Around in the streets in India, this is what I've heard. I don't know if that's true, and that they're not like caged up in a factory farm. At least some of them.
5: That's right, and also the the male cows are used as draft animals, so the situation is somewhat different. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it does take a toll on the environment. Oh sure, and uh, where Indian people are learning to use soy milk instead of cow's milk and make other changes that. Only an improvement. All right, but it is difficult for Indian people to understand why vegans don't drink milk. Right.
1: So, um, what is your vision of the future for the American Vegan Society? What do you have? uh, Do you have any new projects you're working on?
5: Well, we we want to create center here, an educational center, which uh, it has been in the past in a small way, but we have a vision for a, a renovated center where people can come and, and learn about veganism and experience it. The, it's one thing to read a cookbook. It's another thing to uh, watch a cooking demo. Uh, even better is to work in a kitchen with someone, hands-on experience. That's what really helps people change.
1: And you you guys do still publish a magazine about veganism?
5: Yes, we do. The magazine used to be called Ahimsa, uh, but in 2001 we changed the name to American Vegan. It's a quarterly publication. And we're getting more and more people involved with it to help
1: us. That's great because, well, we've recently uh, heard that Satcha Magazine is going to stop publishing and um, Herbivore Magazine has uh, kind of gone to just online publishing pretty much. So I think there's a a real vacancy in the magazine department for vegan uh, outreach. So hopefully you're...
5: Well, it's good for people to have something they can hold in their hands.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I definitely agree with you, and I I hope that your uh, magazine can fill that position and uh, maybe get some more circulation and get out there more.
5: Well, that's our objective. I hope some of your listeners will (laughs) get in touch with us and we can send them a sample copy of the magazine. Okay. And and what's your website? Our website is www.americanvegan.org.
1: And the magazine subscription, I imagine they can get? The
5: subscription is $20 a year, or $10 for low-income people and students.
1: And how many issues is that?
5: That would be for four issues.
1: Four issues. Great.
5: And for people who don't get on the computer, our phone number is 856-694-2887.
1: All right. Fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, tell us about in our last few minutes here?
5: Well, I'd like to invite your listeners to come to our event on Sunday, May the 27th. We're in South Jersey, which is a more rural area of New Jersey. We're in the middle of truck farming country, growing vegetables and fruits. And I think you'd love to meet us, and we'd like to meet you. (laughs) you.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on our show. Um, it's uh, well, Thank you, you
5: for inviting me.
1: You're welcome. And if you have any news or events coming up after that, just uh, let us know and we'll help you publish. Uh, pub- blah, blah, blah. What's the word, Megan?
5: Thank Publicize. you. i be happy to Publicize. tell people about your show, Derek.
1: <laughs> thank you.
5: You're welcome. All right. A, Thanks so much. Day. Bye-bye.
1: Bye. All right.
2: Freya Dinshaw, American, American Vegan Society.
1: Society. How do I always get tongue-tied? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Megan's just... wearing those sunglasses, and she's, <laughs> she's always giving me these looks, and when I look <laughs> over at her, my tongue just stuck, starts like, getting tangled up in my teeth and stuff. It's kind of weird.
2: <laughs> Even with my sunglasses on?
1: I think that's what's doing it. Cause I...
2: <laughs> you can't... Oh, you can't see Meg's eyes.
3: <laughs> You're doing something evil under there. <laughs> <way. laughs> Crossing her eyes at you the whole time.
2: Yep, I've been actually putting a little curse on you. Really? What mm-hmm. kind of curse? Oh, I can't talk about it right now.
1: <laughs> oh boy.
2: All right. So that's our show, kids. Is it?
1: It's our show, really. That's our.
2: That's that's going to be basically it. I mean, I'm excited that Kenneth Williams, I think, has been working with um, the American Vegan Society a little bit, and I think has been doing possibly some. Poster advertisements for them? Is that true?
1: Yeah, I think they have a billboard or something crazy. Yeah. Go vegan and nobody gets hurt, and it has Kenneth flexing with a little baby chick on his arm.
2: Yep, and Kenneth Williams, again, is a vegan bodybuilder. And do we know his website?
1: He's almost as buff as I am.
2: He's, he is one. Big buff handsome guy, Kenneth really? Williams. I, I really encourage our <laughs> listeners to go to his website. It's uh,
3: veganmusclepower.org, all one word. Veganmusclepower.org. Great. And, Scott uh,
1: is the uh, web designer.
3: Well, well. someday he has, soon you'll see the new site. But yeah, right, right now it's it's got a lot of old content on it. Old but but the contact info is the main thing. And yeah. uh, and uh, you can check out some of his uh, photographs and you know experience the buffness that is Kenneth.
2: Yeah, and I just I just think he's doing a great thing for the vegan movement because he is showing people that you can be very, very muscular and buff guy and do it all on a vegan diet. So he's an inspiration. He's breaking myths out there. He's
1: an inspiration to Megan,
2: especially. <laughs> he's an inspiration. He's fantastic.
1: All right, well, check out our show notes at veganradio.com. And also uh, check out the vegan bus project at the veganbus.com and uh, check me out anytime. <laughs> I'll be
2: at Evolution Cafe. In I think about it's five time minutes. for I think it's time for Derek to check out. you know what I'm saying.
1: Up next we have uh,
2: Jay Deacon. Jay Deacon with I always
1: felt like saying Jay Dinshaw. <laughs> and listeners
2: I'll be taking over the broadcast <laughs> in the next two weeks.
1: Don't adjust your dial.
3: <laughs> Ciao.